The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. From the pinnacle of the media landscape, this is Market Edge. Join your host, Larry Weber, as he discovers the answers from analysts, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are preparing the blueprints for the future of marketing. Hear from those who are taking us to a new age of social media, e-communities, and the blogosphere. Blogosphere. Now, please welcome your host of Market Edge, Larry Weber. Hi, and welcome to Market Edge. I'm your host, Larry Weber, chairman of W2 Group, a global marketing services ecosystem organized to help CMOs in their new role as builders of communities and content aggregators. Today I'll be talking about the future of digital technology and business with an old friend and an, an admired colleague, John Sviolkla, the Vice Chairman of Diamond Management and Technology Consultants. At Diamond, John's research focuses on the ways executives and organizations can create value with technology. Prior to joining Diamond, John researched and taught at the Harvard Business School for 12 years in marketing, information services, decision sciences, his seminal articles in the Harvard Business Review, Managing in the Marketplace, and Exploiting the Virtual Value Chain were among the first harbingers of the growth of the Internet world. John received his bachelor's degree with high honors from the Visual and Environmental Studies Department at Harvard. He completed his MBA and DBA with a major in Management Information Systems from Harvard University. He regularly blogs at the Harvard Business Review at S-V-I-O-K-L-A, that's S-V-I-O-K-L-A dot com, everybody. Welcome to Market Edge, John. Thanks, Larry. It's great to be here. Hey, John, tell us first, you know, for our uh, our audience, just a little bit about Diamond itself, because it has quite a colored history and sort of what it does every day for its uh, its companies and our clients, and then what research you're currently working on uh, that you would like to share with us. Well, thanks. Yeah, uh, Diamond was founded about 15 years ago um, or, uh, with the idea that technology could really change the way that businesses created value. And we're about 550 professionals. Uh, we're publicly traded, about uh, $180 million in sales. And we serve uh, both line executives and also information executives around the question of how do I create value with information technology and how do I create value for my organization. Um, the core thing that uh, I've been researching is related to that, which is that how do businesses use technology to design things differently? to design their business models differently, or to design the customer's experiences differently, or to design the products that they sell differently. And that's really been the focus for the past couple of years uh, that I've been looking at, and even more specifically lately, I've been looking at how do people design work environments for very high-value-added knowledge workers, whether it's someone like an animator at Pixar or a gene scientist at Genzyme. Yeah. And does it really cover most of the management sciences? I mean, what you're looking at? I mean, what I've been seeing lately is a lot of uh, senior people saying we're not even organized, right, to take advantage of the new technologies. Yeah, that's definitely um, a critical issue. There's a learning issue. Uh, what's available? What's the art of the possible? What's reasonable? What's near-term? You know, what's long-term? That's one whole set of issues. And then the issue about how do I organize to take advantage of it? And, Larry, I think there's even a third issue, which is um, 
people coming up, um, younger people, I'd say ages somewhere around 22, 23 and below, really consume information differently because they're the post-social network crowd. Right, right. Um, you know, and I have five kids, so I have two older ones and three younger ones by that measure, two uh, above uh, 23 and three below. Um, and so I really see that break point even in my own family. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I've got, uh, as the audience knows, I have two older teenage girls, 19 and 17, and they still take still pictures to share. <laughs> and then I have a 13-year-old boy who would never even think of taking a still picture. He just flip videos everything and shares it with everybody. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, hey, on your blog, uh, you say that you've recently been looking at new ideas in business design. Can you mm -hmm. share your thoughts a little more specifically on how digital technology will impact the design of organizations moving forward? Absolutely. The uh, the first part, and this is one I know is very dear to your heart from the conversations we've had over the years, Larry, is the the really the redesign of marketing and and. Um, a lot of this stuff is reflected in your books as well, um, you know, marking on the social web and sticks and stones, that if you think about the process of getting people aware of your brand, getting trial, and getting confirmation that they should actually use it, and then reviewing it, it's all redone with and redesigned what your, you know, um, economics look like, where the leverage points are, and so forth. They're completely different with the ever-present interactive media that we have today. So that's a, that's a huge part. Then there's a, uh, there's a part about how you operate your business, which is very different based on different businesses. So you look at somebody like Goldman Sachs and their high-frequency trading um, operations, and I, I don't know how many of your listeners you know, pay attention to this new phenomenon, but you know, my limited um, understanding of it is that it's basically very high-speed arbitrage and uh, technical trading. The backbone of that is information technology that can analyze faster, execute better, and keep track in a superior way of what's going on both for your positions and for positions around the world. That's just one example of how the core process economics can change. And then I think the, the third area is really how you think about uh, the product or service itself so that more and more things are getting connected to the web. Um, the majority of automobiles now are launched with telecommunications capabilities, and it's only a matter of regulation that has kept the cars themselves from becoming part of the network. I mean, what really should happen is the cars should have, um, you know, Wi-Fi capability built into them, be able to create a mesh network, so you'd actually have the cars as part of the telecommunications system. Uh, but in any event, you look at something like OnStar, at GM, and it saved them hundreds of millions of dollars because they can predictively analyze what's going on with their fleet in the field, and that's just the beginning of the kind of connected customer. So I'd say at least those three areas, Larry. And it's amazing when you, you start looking at some of those. I was at the Media Lab the other day at MIT, and some of the new connected technologies that they're talking about, I mean, having Close Connect, I mean, having, uh, you know, uh, vending machines, uh, I mean, on and on. I mean, this whole next generation of the web, it truly is going to be a connected planet, and how companies behave and market is going to be fascinating. Absolutely. You know, and some of the stuff sounds far out, but some of the stuff's really straightforward, which is that, um, you know, Nationwide Insurance now has an iPhone application where you can do uh, your first accident report 
by just grabbing a picture, filling out your information, the other driver's information from your iPhone, and you send it into Nationwide. So something as simple as that now is just right out there at the end of the network. The, the really interesting question is, where does your organization end and where does the you know, customer's experience begin? And for more and more companies, the skin of their organization is actually way out there at the cell phone or the desktop or with the connected device. And that's a yeah. whole new management challenge. And you got to wonder, I mean, you know, from where, where I grew up, is the skin really the brand? And, you know, and where does the brand begin and the brand end? And I, you know, I argue the brand increasingly is just the dialogue you have with the customer becomes the brand and what kind of trust, information flow, et cetera. And so the whole branding process, I think, is going to be radically changed with this connectivity. Do you agree? Absolutely. You know, it's funny because um, the I'm, I'm going to be guilty of something I used to crucify my students for doing when I taught marketing, uh, which is I'll generalize, generalize for myself. Um, <laughs> my, my, my grandfather ran a grocery store, Sveilka's Grocery, and he passed away when I was a, a young kid, so I really didn't get to know him that well. But I, in the neighborhood, you know, I was always well-known because my grandfather had had those conversations with folks. He built his business basically on carrying people through the Depression. You know, so he extended credit, and he was nice to people during the Depression, and so he outcompeted all the other little Polish-Lithuanian grocery stores in the, in the neighborhood. And it's those conversations now, we're returning to those, I think, on a mass scale through a combination of, you know, Twitter and Facebook and every other kind of dialogue that we're having. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have those same kind of what, you know, the anthropologists would call rich, rich description or, you know, rich attributes between people, which always is the human thing to do. But we're doing it at a scale now that we couldn't do before. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, from, uh, you know, from the, that small business to an individual, let's say to the, the Fortune 500, when, when, John, when you're tasked with building a global social media strategy uh, for a Fortune, you know, 100 or 500 company, what do you foresee as being the biggest challenges and obstacles in, in really executing on those kinds of things? Well, the first thing is to make sure you know what you're after, that um, the, the traditional marketing measures of, you know, how am I going to get customers more effectively and more efficiently? What's that going to convert in terms of sales? How am I going to measure it in terms of satisfaction and so forth? I think first you have to get the frame right to know what you're aiming for. The second thing is really to get comfortable with the idea that, um, and I know you've talked about this for, for many years, Larry, with, with your clients um, and your writings, but you have to get comfortable with the idea that you're not in control completely of the brand anymore. It is this conversation. So we see in every field, whether it's financial services or cosmetics or um, uh, travel, and, and we've done significant um, jobs for each of for companies in each of those industries, what we see is that it's a combination of company-generated content. You know, gee, go to this location, it's a great hotel, and so forth, and user-generated content. Gee, we liked it, we didn't like it, the staff was nice, the beds were hard, all that stuff. And to be comfortable with that, partially generated conversation by you, the company, and partially generated by your customers. And then I think the third thing, and this is often the hardest thing, is to really generate the organizational capability to make it happen. And, I mean, you know this. I mean, I think this is part of the reason that you've created your ecosystem, is that these are new skills, the skills to be able to have this multi-log, 
to design media for an interactive world, to be able to create that continuous skin we're just talking about across the phone and the web and Twitter and Facebook, that takes a new um, aesthetic and a new set of skills. And, you know, your typical IT department is short on those skills. And the senior executives really haven't experienced it, so they get uncomfortable with the aesthetic. So I think that's the kind of the most subtle and the most... uh, challenging part really is just understanding the kind of skills you need and getting comfortable with them. You know, it's so funny, John, when I give talks often, I'll, and especially with CEOs in the room, I'll uh, always ask how many um, of your websites are run by IT and how many are run by marketing, and it's still majority in the IT department, which is amazing to me that we haven't moved more quickly to understanding that IT has a whole different role in, in the growth of the web. Yeah, well, well, I think you know. The, I agree, and that's a, that's a, and it's a change that's needed. But you know, my brother-in-law, um, Mike Harvey, he created the whole genre called cold case files, the documentary yeah. versions, and um, so he's you know he's a Emmy award-winning you know television producer, the whole routine, and then he got sick of doing that, so he started writing novels, and his novels are doing great. He has a, he just finished up two of them called The Chicago Way and The Fifth Floor, and he's got a third one coming out. At the, third rail and he's on contract for another one anyway so michael is you know certainly somebody who understands new media and it's amazing he's had to be the one to create any of the web-based content for the promotion of his book because the publishers just don't know what to do i mean you get a few out there like o'reilly media not o'reilly the television guy but o'reilly the internet web 2.0 guy um and you know there are very few that understand even in a medium like media what to do. So you can be, um, I guess you can be empathetic but not sympathetic, that, <laughs> that they don't know what they're doing, but they really have to get on their game. When I say they, I mean, you know, corporations at large. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, we're going to take a short commercial break right now. Please stand by, and we'll be right back with John Fiocla and more of, uh, of this conversation. This is Larry Weber at Market Edge. Market Edge will continue in just a moment. How do you choose the right affiliate network to partner with? The answer is simple. MarketHealth.com, where health and wealth connect. Established in 1998, the MarketHealth.com affiliate network allows you to market and promote the world's leading health and beauty offers on the net. Start making recurring income and the highest payouts in our industry. Choose from over 50 of the hottest selling offers, ranging from herbal supplements, skincare, vitamins, beauty products, weight loss, and much more. Sign up for free at MarketHealth.com and start making money today. This is a test of the PR Web content and news delivery system from PR Web and PRWebAuthor.com. If this was a real release date, your story would reach more than 30,000 journalists, 250,000 RSS subscribers, and just over 30,000 unique websites. PR Web can reach your target audience online, drive traffic to your website, achieve high rankings on search engines, and get your content on top news sites like Yahoo News. Editors are available 24-7 to help you optimize your content for maximum exposure to over 70 million people in the U.S. alone. If this were a real PR web release date, your website would have so much traffic, you'd be tempted to duck and cover. If you have an online marketing emergency, go to PRWebOffer.com for 25% off. PR Web, the premier online news release and content distribution service. Your company's website sucks. You know it. 
Everybody knows it. So get a to-do list to fix it. On Target, a subscription service from Future Now and Brian Eisenberg monitors your website 24-7. Analyzing the actions of every potential customer. It gives you a to-do list. It tells you exactly what to fix and how to fix it. So that more of your visitors do what you need them to do. On Target pricing starts at $1,000 a month. See more at futurenowinc.com slash on target. Join marketing to women expert Maria Retan as she chats with those in the know so your business can grow. Purse Strings, Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the advertising channel. Only on webmasterradio.fm. From the pinnacle of the marketing landscape, we now return to Market Edge. Once again, here's your host, Larry Weber. Welcome back to Market Edge. This is your host, Larry Weber, and I'm here today with John Sviokla, the Vice Chairman of Diamond Management and Technology Consultants, and uh, a very popular blogger. He blogs uh, from the Harvard Business Review at svioka.com for everybody. You should check it out. And uh, we're talking about the future of a lot of different things. I want to change the track just a little bit to have a little fun, John. Uh, I'd love to have my listeners have your vision, and you're not allowed to talk along about this, but I'm just going to bring up a few companies, and I'd love you to tell me what you think those companies impact and what they look like in, say, three, four years' time. And Uh I know that's an eternity, but I'm going to start with one that's only about – 11 years old, it's called Google. What's your mm-hmm. take? Well, I think, um, to me, there's two really interesting questions about Google. First, uh, is Google Voice going to work? Because uh, Google could become one of the world's largest phone companies. Um, I thought, um, I actually thought Facebook should have bought Skype uh, from uh, from eBay because they could have become, with 400 million users on Facebook, they could have been you know, the, the largest phone company in the world uh, overnight. Or, sorry, one of the largest, I know, in China. God, uh, that would have been this smart. <laughs> yeah, and they would have found a money, they would have found a monetization engine for Facebook, which would have been interesting. So I think Google Voice is a real wild card. And then the second thing is Google Wave. I actually just did a blog post about Google Wave today. I think Google Wave um, has the potential to ch- to essentially be Lotus Notes the internet. I know a lot of people will choke on that phrase, but I think Lotus Notes did a lot of things that um, people who are doing coordinated, uh, interdependent, high-value-added knowledge work need, which is you need the ability to synchronize, you need the ability to um, bring people up to speed quickly on what the current status is, you need the ability to control documents and have a common truth. And Google Wave, I think, could do that uh, because it allows the redefinition of what I'm, what uh, I'd call context, which is kind of the, the, the context for the information presented. And, um, and Google, at least if you look at the, the the way the things put together, Google Wave capability it would allow you to do that with lots of different documents, and they have an open uh, platform, open APIs, you know, application programming interfaces that allow for new functionality to be added. So to me, those are two big wild cards. I think Google. Uh, just in general, the one last thing about Google is that Google will continue to make a ton of money because anybody who's first in the demand chain, not the supply chain, but the demand chain, and Google is first in the demand chain, wins. Yeah. So they will continue to win until somebody outcompetes them on that. 
Twitter. As, as I think you know, Larry, I, I wrote a thing about Twitter where I said, Twitter's the duct tape of marketing, and I still <laughs> believe that uh, as a big user of duct tape. The, um, um, the reason is that I think Twitter is uh, one of those wonderful applications that's, that's so simple it can be created, uh, you know, uh, morphed into anything, just the way duct tape can. I mean, you know, people make dresses out of duct tape. Uh, I kept half my uh, apartment together when I was in college. Um, and Twitter allows you to do that, whether it's giving people status, um, you know, sending out information, broadcasting, narrowcasting, um, you know, whatever. Their challenge, of course, is what their monetization scheme will be. I believe that uh, they have a tremendous amount of value to any telecommunications company because they create huge primary demand and they have an unbelievable addressing structure, if you will. And I also think uh, that it wouldn't be hard to um, create couponing around Twitter. I don't know if you know the company Groupon, uh, but uh, you had a group coupon. And actually just blogged about them. Uh, it'll be going up at Harvard shortly. But um, Groupon is where you get one deal for every city for every day. And if a certain number of people sign up for the deal, then all of a sudden um, that deal becomes real. So you can get, you know, in my son's case, he's putting a Groupon thing up. He does comedy in Chicago. If he gets 50 people to sign up, they'll get half off at Improv Olympic to see his show, Japonski. Um and so, and Groupon makes money by sharing the revenue associated from that coupon offer. Given the fact that there's, I believe, about $350 billion in couponing in this country, I think something like Twitter could be turned into an amazing couponing company overnight. Sounds like a really interesting company. I, I think that whole category, I've told the audience this before, of digital couponing and sort of peer-to-peer, you know, uh, loyalty, all that has yet to be deeply explored. But I, I think it, as a, it, it sounds tactical, but I think it's going to be a huge category. So. Uh, massive. It, I think, it, Larry, you, you know this better than I, it, is couponing bigger than television? I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, so it's a, it's a bigger. I don't think a lot of people understand it's a bigger category than TV. Yeah. So you know, there's a lot of money sloshing around there, um, and uh, and as you and I both know, it's some of it's very effective and most of it's not. And so, uh, you know, I think that there are clever new ways to do that. So I think Twitter will be around, and they'll figure out a business model, and uh, it'll it'll either get purchased by somebody or stand alone in a model like the one we we're just talking about. Speaking of people that might buy it, but uh, I have to lump these two together, and I just want your reaction, uh, especially are they going to go poof, or will they, uh, will they continue to build? And that's AT&T and Verizon Wireless. Oh, boy. Um, I think they'll continue to build, and I'll tell you the reason I think that's the case is because uh, telecommunications in any country um, is complex because – the above the iceberg stuff that we see is um, all the uh, you know the, the reliability and the network build out return on capital and so forth. The under the iceberg stuff that we don't always see is that with the, with the possible exception of um, certain um, uh, you know firearms and um, and uh, farming interests, the telecommunications companies have been. Uh, lobbying at the local, the regional, and the national level longer than just about any other business, and they have great relationships with regulators and so forth. And, you know, um, so I think that that's entrenched. 
The other thing that, that very few people talk about is the security issues, that you know, telecommunications is a critical point where the security apparatus of the country plugs into the common conversation. And so I believe that those political and security issues are always weighed uh, in the equation along with economic value for individuals. And because of that, I think the large telecommunications players will continue throughout our lifetime to have a big role. I agree with you there. Um, thanks for that. Switching a little bit, I was, uh, you know, reading your blogs of the last few weeks, and you had a really interesting one, I think, to my audi- our audience here today, who are a lot of chief uh, marketing officers, senior marketing people. Um, it was about JetBlue's all-you-can-jet promotion mm-hmm. and uh, how it appears. I think for people that didn't see it, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, John, I think the the basic concept was it allowed people to pay 599 bucks or something, and you could fly as much as you want from September some date to October some date. But JetBlue had to suspend sales within a week due to such an overwhelming response. Um you know, what you had said was that the promotion sort of showed that the company really didn't understand the implications of behavioral economics. I thought, could you give us sort of some basic reasons um, that it was successful but sort of failed, and also maybe a little high level on what you mean by behavioral economics, especially from a marketer's perspective? Sure. Um, the um, the The... Promotion, as you say, succeeded uh, so well it failed. Uh, uh, because the uh, traditional economics would say that um, you know free is just another price, and it's very close to almost free. But real behavior is when so- somebody gets something for free, their um, use of it usually goes up tremendously. So when they said that you can uh, do all the jetting you want in a given time period, and I think you have the times right. I, I don't remember the details off the top of my head, but that sounds right. The, uh, the demand for unlimited use was much greater. And in history, we've got lots of examples of this. When AOL went, uh, they looked at how people normally use, use their uh, medium, and they estimated the price elasticities and said, okay, if we take this thing to a fixed price of, I think at the time it was 20 bucks a month, here's the demand we'll get. They get over four times the amount that they expected in terms of usage because having it be free versus a price, even a small price, was tremendous. Amazon.com saw the same thing. In France, uh, by accident, they put in shipping for five cents, uh, sorry, for one franc instead of free. They did not see a huge bump. They went for free shipping on Amazon Prime in the U.S., and they saw a huge bump in demand. So there's lots of evidence out there. How come Skype hasn't, speaking of free, though, or maybe it has. I don't even know the numbers on Skype. But, you know, what, I mean, I get this huge phone bill because my wife didn't use the Skype that I showed her how to use. How come that hasn't taken off as big, or is it just a generational thing? I think it's a generational thing, Larry, because it's got 350 million registered users. And, um, you know, it certainly uh, isn't an age thing. I won't say it's your technical instruction either. We'll leave that off the table. But, (laughs) (laughs) um, the... You know, you see people of all ages using it internationally for sure. Um, I I, I also think that Skype hasn't been a a real branded company, if you will. Right, right. You know, if they had somebody like you doing their branding, you know, they'd be be a billion-person company. 
Um, but anyway, um, the uh, I, I mean, I really mean that. You know, I'm being flattering, <laughs> but it's true. Um, Thanks so for the, the flattery, but, uh, but it'll get you everywhere, John. The uh, you know, how about some contemporary news as we're, we're ending up here? Uh, you know, there was a, a big proposed purchase. I think it actually is is going to go through uh, four billion dollars. Uh, the old brand of Disney paying for the old brand of Marvel Comics, and I think you said uh, Disney was a master at performing three D branding. Yeah. What is the difference between a 3D and a 2D brand, John? Well, 3D branding for me um, is continuity across space and time and also different um, cognitive links, if you will, or what the, what the folks in the, in the trade call memes, right, memory traces, right. Um, or mental models, or however you want to think about it. And a 3D brander understands how to connect all those up. And um, I think it's a brilliant purchase on their part. They should have bought them some time ago. You know, uh, Perlmutter did a great job of turning Marvel around and making Disney pay real money for them. But um, the reason is, is that um, I'm actually working on a blog post now that says everybody should have a Marvel uh, strategy. Like, for example, luxury brands um, are totally 2D brands, but there's so many things associated with luxury brands that they could go out and buy the intellectual property that's associated with luxury brands, whether it's movies or or paraphernalia or artifacts and so forth. Anyway, the idea of 3D branding is to create that kind of continuity. And if you think about in anybody's mind, in any culture, you think about these images, you know, that have strong meaning, in the case of Marvel, Iron Man, Spider-Man, and so forth, they are like pools of oil to a, uh, to a uh, you know, oil company. And the challenge is most brands don't have an upstream production company, if you know the lingo from the oil company. That is, who's doing exploration for the new pools and for the associated pools? And what Marvel is to Disney is it's upstream production. And they'll be able to take the Disney machine and drill that and develop it. And, uh, you know, if you want to get the, the, the 3D branding notion, just think about, for, for any of your listeners who've walked down Main Street as you're coming out of Disneyland or Disney World, and what you see there is all the different brands that you've experienced in dolls and, and you know, DVDs and shirts and, you know, candy, the whole routine. And that is that continuity of these memory traces that you've just had this emotional relationship with and all these merchandising events that are sitting there as you walk out of the park to try to help you remember. That's just one example of the genius of Disney and the 3D branding, um, which Walt was just unbelievable at. But everybody can do it if you start to think that way. Cool example. Very cool. Hey, I'm sorry we're, we're running out of time, but I always uh, try to ask one last question. It's a, it's a bit of a surprise question, so if you don't have the answer on the tip of your tongue, it's okay. We'll forgive you, John. But is there any cool site that you've – it doesn't have, have to have anything to do with you, uh, your career, but is there some new uh, website environment that uh, you have found particularly helpful or interesting or fun that, that you would like to at least share with uh, the listeners? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I think cracked.com, the, um, <laughs> it's the relaunch of the old Mad Magazine uh, competitor, Cracked. <laughs> And um, what's great is that they, I think they know how to remix uh, stuff. And the fun thing is that humor is right at the edge of creativity. And when we're talking about, because it brings the, the humor comes from the unexpected. 
Yeah, I'm a really dull guy. I'm explaining jokes, right? You know, you're boring <laughs> when you do that. But anyway, the 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 as as my friend Alan Kay says, the ha ha moment that is the funny moment is right next to the aha moment that is the yeah. revolution moment, and so um, they're really good. And so I like I like them as a way to uh, get me thinking. Well, with that final crack, I want to thank John Svial Club for spending some time on Market Edge. John is the uh, Vice Chairman of Diamond Management and Technology Consultants and also one of our most prolific and thoughtful bloggers from Harvard Business Review at svioka.com. Please uh, go, uh, go read some of John's work. And, John, thanks a million for being on Market Edge. My pleasure, Larry. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. And thanks, everybody in the audience, for listening to today's Market Edge Conversation. Tune again on Tuesdays at 12 noon Eastern Time in the United States at webmasterradio.fm. This is Larry Weber from Market Edge. Till next time, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.